if you would go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. Um, so whether that's an app on your phone or a good old-fashioned Bible like this one, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. Now, uh, if today's your first time with us or maybe your first time in a while, we started this series entitled Who Wins just a few weeks ago. And the hope of this series is that uh, you can walk away with the ability to find clarity on who Christ is, mostly, but also find clarity on what I think are some of the most important areas of influence in a person's life. And so to do this, we've been talking about how to frame your decisions with this one question, who wins? Who wins? And the hope of the series is that uh, you can walk away with the ability to find, uh, you know, uh, just, just some type of clarification you know, to, on that. And, and, and we, over the last few weeks, we've been asking questions like this, right? So who wins when anything other than Jesus defines our love? Oh, hi, Sherbar. Hey, how you guys doing? Good to see you. Got a banana over there. Sorry. Kind of hungry. I just got distracted. My bad. Uh, <laughs> who wins when the pastor can't pay attention because he's hungry? Uh, nobody. Anyways, uh, but who wins when anything other than Jesus defines our love, right? Uh, in other words, who wins when the way we treat those around us is not influenced by the totality of the life and the teaching of Jesus, but is determined by maybe, um, I don't know, maybe moralistic ideals of the populace or at best therapeutic moralism attributed to the cherry-picked, set-out teachings of Jesus pulled out of context and its original te- intent. We also asked things like this. Uh, last week we asked, who wins when we do not consider how God sees our time? Who wins when choosing how to spend our time, uh, when choosing how to spend our time, we, we don't make eternal things a priority? And so these are, these are the kind of questions we ask. And what's great about framing your decisions with the question, who wins, is that it kind of pushes aside all the excuses we kind of make for why we do what we do. And it literally confronts us to come to grips with what we already know to be true, that what we want to do sometimes and <laughs> what we should do are completely two different things. And that what we think we are doing and what we really are doing are also sometimes two incredibly different things. And when you find yourself in that situation where you realize that this is happening, this can be incredibly uncomfortable. It can feel like you're maybe being attacked or confronted. In fact, I uh, was uh, kind of third-party texting with someone last week was we were talking about this idea of asking the question, who wins when you don't make eternal things a priority, when you don't see your time as God sees? And, and they were like, yeah, we, we totally felt attacked there. We totally felt uh, like you were like preaching at us. And I'm like, I, I, you know, sorry, it's, it's, it's just the Bible. It just kind of does what it does. It, it's useful to teach us and instruct us, and it cuts to the heart sometimes. But that's kind of that's the nature of what happens when we ask this question, who wins, especially if we're followers of Christ, and we think from the perspective, not from this world, but from what God thinks. And just because it feels uncomfortable, sometimes there's a temptation to maybe shut out or cancel this question. But I want to encourage you to, as we often say around here, embrace the awkward that is this question that places you in. Because let's just be honest, some of you have gotten a bad haircut before, and that doesn't mean you don't ever get your hair cut again, right? I mean, I go to the gym, and I look out of shape, 
But that doesn't mean the gym is at a is it a bad place to go for getting in shape, right? I mean, that's, that's just because just you had a bad experience doesn't mean that you shouldn't embrace the experience. So today, as we close this series, I want to pose a question that will hopefully cause us to think about uh, living wisely when it comes to how we look at our stuff, right? And so the question is this. Who wins when we mistake acts of generosity as signs of a generous life? I think... If you're an American, which uh, I think everyone who watches this online is American, and I'm looking here, and I think everyone here is American. Uh, most of us in America know that people in America know how to give, right? We know how to give. We know how to show acts of generosity. We know how to respond to an ask uh, and, and a need. But most Americans don't know how to live a life of generosity because when it comes to living a generous life, you know and I know that generosity is more than random acts of giving. This is because when it comes to a generous life, you know and I know that generosity is more than just passing a, a dollar here or ten dollars there. In fact, I'll make the bold statement that the reason why most people even feel compelled to give something to someone is because it helps mask the fact that most of us don't know how to be generous. And that's because the secret to a generous life is understanding that, uh, as, as one pastor uh, I love, he says this, he goes, generosity is not a do thing, but it's a be thing, right? Generosity is not something you do, it's who you are. And if we were honest with ourselves, here's what many people know but hate to admit. People who confuse generosity with a do thing instead of a be thing, can be persuaded, they can be inspired, they can be guilted into giving. But generous people, when they hear, please, for giving, please, for charity, they don't feel guilty, they don't feel the need to be persuaded or need to feel even inspired to give because generous people are generous people. And this is because generous people reorient their rhythms around a plan to give. When they hear <laughs> the ask for a give and people are saying, I'm going to give, they say things like, well, man, that's the way I've been living my whole life. I mean, it's like the people that I hear who are like, you know, I feel I just discovered this thing. It's called a budget and it's done wonders for our financial life. And I'm like, wow. I mean, I don't want to rain on the parade, but like that's kind of what you're supposed to do. Like, <laughs> you're supposed to have a budget, right? And the same thing with generous people. They, they're not neither surprised, neither are they judgmental, but neither are they pressured when the ask comes because they reorient the rhythms around giving. And so people who are generous, they are people who give more, they consume less, and they have more left over. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good life. That sounds like a happy life. Now, on the flip side, people who are not generous are not happy because they are people who wish they had more money so that they could have less problems, right? More money. If I had more money, I would have less problems. But as some of you know from the great theologian Christopher Wallace once said, more money, more problems, right? More money, more problems. I know that you want they want from me. It's like the... Right. No, no, okay. Nobody knows. All right. He was a, I'm talking about the notorious B.I.G., Big E, Smalls, a.k.a. Big E. 
Uh, but listen, <laughs> this is true because more money doesn't actually solve real problems people who aren't generous have. Let me say that again. More money doesn't solve the real problems people who aren't generous have. When we are not generous, it's easier to convince ourselves that we have a money problem instead of admitting we have either A, a contentment problem, we, we want more than we can afford, B, well, a self-control problem, we spend more than we make, or a discipline problem that we actually, when it's said and done, we, we really don't have a plan to be generous. And so the, the question is, and you know, the series, we're asking the who wins questions, the question is this, who wins when we desire more than we can afford, spend more than we can make, and have no plan for how to live generous. Who wins when we live like that? Who wins? The more pressing problem is that, uh, is, is that if you're a follower of Christ and you're someone who maybe struggles to be generous, uh, not that you don't want to, but you just feel like there are a lot of barriers for you to be generous, then I might submit to you that you actually have a more serious problem than a contentment problem, a self-control problem, or a discipline problem. That, that maybe, just maybe, you actually have a spiritual problem. Now, before you get mad at me, <laughs> while some of what we're going to talk about are things that can help bring a solution to contentment problems, self-control problems, or discipline problems, what I want to challenge us all is really all of us who say we follow Jesus, but maybe struggle to understand that our lack of generous living isn't a money problem, I want us to understand that it is a spiritual problem. Because who wins when we convince ourselves that we have a money problem instead of admitting that really we have a spiritual problem? Who wins when we tell ourselves that, ah, I could be more generous if I only had more money, but maybe we're not generous because the focus of our life is in the wrong place. Now, the best perspective I've found in regarding the correlation between what you and I accumulate because of our work and our spiritual life is something that Jesus actually taught when he was making disciples. Here's what Matthew's gospel records, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. It actually says this in verse 19, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Uh, I used to live downtown Minneapolis for like six years, and like, I know what that means to have thieves breaking in and steal. My car used to get robbed all the time, and so I get it. And I, every morning I used to wake up, hold my breath, and be like, treasures in heaven, treasures in heaven. <gasps> my CDs are gone. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust, rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart where will, will be also. Jesus goes on to say this in just a few verses down. No one can serve two masters since either will, he will either hate one or, or love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And this phrase that Jesus says that you, 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 you can't serve both God and money, you, you must serve one or the other, this is really, honestly, the core teaching of Jesus on money because Jesus teaches something here that no one back then really understood and is something that each and every one of us can struggle to even understand today. 
that there are two masters vying for your attention, and you cannot serve both God and money. Remember when we started this whole series, the whole premise of who wins isn't this idea of like, do you win? Does she win? Does I win? Do, is it this earthly thing? But we, we reference this idea that there's a cosmic heavenly battle that's going on that's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities and the powers of this world. And so when we ask who wins, we're not necessarily asking like, do you win? Do I win? Do you win? But we're actually asking like, in the grand scheme of things, does God win? Does his purposes win? Does his plan for us win? Does his plan for the world win? Does a plan for his gospel to change lives, to make them not only just better versions of themselves, but to make them new, created in Christ for good works that he prepared long ago? Is that what happens? Who wins? And so that's what we're asking. We're reminded of that today. That there are two masters vying for our attention. You cannot serve both God and money. And I say core because this particular statement is recorded. It has been being said by Jesus multiple times. In fact, uh, Matthew 6 is, is one, and, and then Luke 16, Jesus says this same phrase again in a whole different sermon. So evidently, Jesus had sermon points that he repeated again and again and again. And so uh, when you find that, you know, Phil just seems to be preaching the same stuff over and over and over again. Look, don't hate. I'm just trying to be like Jesus, all right? <laughs> Thanks, honey. That was my daughter. Huh? Or was that, or was that, no, that was, that was Jill. My bad. It sounded like my daughter. Now you would think Jesus would say the opposite of God is what? The devil, right? The opposite of God is the devil or sin or evil. But he says the opposite of God in this context is what? Money. You will either serve God or you'll be enslaved to your money and possessions. In Jesus' way of thinking, the chief competitor for your devotion is your money and your possessions. Now, God wants your devotion. He does. That means God wants to call the shots in your life, but there is something else that wants to call the shots in your life. Your desire and my desire for stuff. When Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, you will only be devoted to one. And what does the word devoted mean? Well, it means I got my eye on. It means that is my filter for decision-making. Or this thing is what I'm driving for. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who have ever had money, had the opportunity to spend money, has your desire for something ever caused you to do something stupid with your money? Has your desire for something ever caused you to do something maybe you regret uh, with your money? If the answer is yes, you are in good company. We all do something dumb because of something we want. And what does that tell you about yourself? What does that tell me about me? Well, it tells me that a desire for something can equate to a devotion to something. That which you desire, if you're not careful, can become the thing which you devote your life to. And Jesus says that in that process, you actually become enslaved to your money, and you cannot be equally devoted to God and enslaved to your devotion to acquiring. But there's a way to submit how we manage our money to God and, and His way, in the same teaching about serving God and money, Jesus eventually says something that we closed our message last week reading. 
just it was relevant and helping us have a right perspective in our time. Even more so, it is helpful for us to gain a right perspective on our money because of this passage. No matter how you try to avoid it, it confronts our sinful desire to be a slave to money and shows us a better way. What am I talking about? Look at this. Matthew 6, verse 25. It says this, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is it life more than food and the body more than clothes? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? For some of you, that, that's just good right there. Like the idea of pausing and going, all this worrying, whether it's about money or last week we talked about time or all this worry about like what's happening in the political landscape as we, as we talked about in week one. Can you add one more moment to your life with your worry? Jesus says, and why do you worry about clothes? Obvious, observe how the wildflowers of the field grow, yet they don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And here's, here's the point. This is what we read last week. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. So according to Jesus, priority, priority, I mean, I cannot say that word today. Prioritizing, prioritizing. Now I sound like my mom. <laughs> according to Jesus, prioritizing God's kingdom first is an invitation to his activity in your life. And if you're going to prioritize God's kingdom, you have to have a plan for making sure your treasure is where your heart is. In his letter to the churches in and around a city called Corinth, Paul says this, On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping how, with how he is prospering so that no collections will be needed to be made when I come. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. You can take a look at that. Now, I don't have the time to really go into all the details about what this special collection Paul was talk, taking. Uh, the, the important thing to recognize is this. Paul is communicating what a generous life focused on prioritizing God's kingdom looks like. You see, he's telling the Christians in and around the city of Corinth that he's going to be coming to them and he's going to be taking this offering for uh, the work of ministering to those in need in, back, in, back in Jerusalem. And, and instead of waiting to get there and then like having to convince them why they have to give, and you know, remember Jesus said to share and to love and to provide for those who are sick and needy, instead of feeling like he has to go and he just sends a letter ahead of time and he just says, look, look, I'm just going to appeal to the kind of living those who are generous already know. Generosity is driven by a plan, not an impulse. And so he appeals to those who already know what it means to live a generous life. He says to them, hey, on the first day of the week, which you probably already do, 
set something aside, which you probably already do, and save it in keeping with how you are prospering, which you probably already do, so that when I come, no collections will be needed to be made. It'll just be there. And if you're going to be generous, you're going to need a plan to make giving a priority. Jesus said, seek first. Paul said, on the first day of the week, you're seeing a little pattern here. And if you're going to be generous, you're going to have to plan to give first. This, of course, is opposite to the typical way of thinking. Most people practice generosity. Most people spend first, right? Well, we earn first, and then we feel the urge to now spend first. And now some of you are like, that's kind of harsh, Phil. We're not spending. We're paying back our bills. Okay, so you've spent first, then you earned, and now you're paying what you owe. Okay, that sounds a lot better. No, most people spend first, and then they give from what they have left. And the more sophisticated ones, the ones who with a little bit more prestige and have their things a little bit more together, will spend first, and then will save and, you know, put our money away into the 401k. And then what's left? Oh, we'll be generous with what's left. But those who live a generous life are those who prioritize giving first. And the follower of Jesus in particular is one who prioritizes giving to the kingdom of God because they know that the most important question you can ask when pursuing a generous life is this. Who wins when I don't prioritize God's kingdom first with my giving? We ask this in relationship to our relationships. <laughs> Last week we asked this in light of our time, and now we want to ask this question now in light of our stuff. Who wins when we don't prioritize God's kingdom, His will, His way, first with our giving? Jesus already answered that question when He said, no one can serve two masters since he either will hate one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So who wins when we don't prioritize God's kingdom first? Well, it's definitely not God. So what does that practically look like? Well, here's some baby steps. One, plan to give consistently. Paul told the Christians in Corinth, here's a suggestion. At the beginning of each week, set something aside. Go ahead, just do it. Because if you're going to prioritize giving, you are going to have to make a plan for it. I know that for some of you that might feel weird, but remember what Jesus said. A desire for something leads to a devotion to something. Some of you desire to live in a house, right? Who here desires to have a roof over your head? And so what do you do? You're devoted to mortgage payments. You're devoted to rent payment. You're devoted to, to that, right? Some of you desire to have a running car to get to or appreciate the fact that there is modern transportation. So what do you do? You're devoted to putting gas in a car, paying the Uber, getting the ticket for the bus ride. And if you desire to prioritize God's kingdom and generous living, you're going to have to take what you earn and decide to set aside some of it first and live on the rest. And once you've figured out how to do that, then you have to plan to give proportionally. So plan to give consistently. Paul said, hey, first, set aside at the beginning of each week. Just do it. And then he says, according to your prospering. How are you prospering? Well, in the Old Testament, Jewish people were commanded to 
uh, to give in proportion to what God has given them. Uh, and depending on what scholar you ask, some people are like, it's 10%, and then some people are like, it's 80%. And so there, I mean, there's people who are a lot smarter than me. Here's what we know. There was a percentage, <laughs> and the Jews back then knew what it was, and when they didn't do it, they were in trouble. But this was something they did. This is something they did. And the ones who revered Yahweh did this not out of obligation, but they did this out of the generosity of their heart because of all the gratefulness they had for all that God had done for them. And so the Old Testament Jews did this, and then when Jesus came along, guess what he does? He says, nah, you don't have to do that anymore, right? No. <laughs> he actually says, yeah, that thing that you do, yeah, actually that's, that's, that's pretty good. That, that's a pretty good thing. In fact, uh, in, one of, in one of the instances where he kind of like lambasts the Pharisees who don't actually help the poor and act justly to people, you know, he, they're like, well, you know, Lord, we, 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 we give and we tithe and we, mint and we, we wash our hands. And, blah, 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 blah. and he's like, well, good for you. You're supposed to do that. What you want, a cookie? Right? That's not what he says. He says, yeah, good job. But you should have done the former, you should have taken care of the sick. You should have taken care. You should have done what is just. And so Jesus doesn't get rid of these idea of, the, uh, of giving proportionally. In fact, he, he says, yeah, that's, come on. That's what everybody does, you know? I mean, saying that I give proportionately is like, <laughs> to steal the joke from one of my favorite comedians, and don't Google this skit because it's bad, but, you know, it's like me saying, I love my kids. Well, what do you mean? Supposed to love your kids, you know, like, but you want a cookie, right? Now, I will admit that Leona and I had parents who taught me from a young age that whenever I get a dollar, 10 cents go back to God through my local church, and 10 cents goes towards savings. Now, my kids are going to get mad because, like, you told us 20 cents. Yeah, because we're making you better than us, okay? And then I get to spend the leftover set, 80, 80, 80 cents. So, as an, as an adult, the idea of giving proportionally has never been a problem for Leona and I. Now, that doesn't mean that God has given us everything we have ever wanted. Like, we seek first His kingdom. And let me tell you, people of God, that when you sow some seed, you get your blessing. Can I get an amen? Ha! No, that's not what happens, okay? That's just not what happens. But here's what we do know. We know the joy of generosity. And we've been freed from the dependence on stuff. I only tell you this because I want you to know that I practice what I preach, and I'm not teaching you something that I don't do and have done literally my whole life personally. And here's the great thing about planning to give proportionally. It's the most intentional when uh, it's the most intentional way to give, and it's the best way to resist the temptation to not make the kingdom of God a priority by giving from what's left over or by giving in just some type of sporadic way when we either getting around to it or when we remember to do it or, you know, when finally someone lets me know that there's actually something good I could do with all this money that I happen to be saving up, right? So the question is, who wins when we plan? a generous life. Who wins when we plan a generous life? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little, little bit of an answer. I know I said in, in terms of God and the, the forces of evil, but 
there's actually some practical things that happen when we prioritize living a generous life. Organizations like Every Meal, who have been one of the most significant organizations in the fight against child food insecurity in the Twin City, they win. Every month, I don't know, some of you know this, uh, we as a church give a proportion, just like we think you should, we give a proportion of everything we receive as a church and give it back to Every Meal, formerly known as the Sheridan story. Well, are they Christian? Like, I don't know, but they're doing a lot of good that way better than we can do. And we just want to get behind what they're doing because we actually believe that somewhere in the Scripture it tells us to live for the welfare, for the shalom of our city. So we're going to try to do the best we can. And that's what we do. And so when we live a generous life as a church, organizations like Every Meal Win, families who because of COVID realities and unforeseen financial uh, complications in our own church over the past, what is it? March, April, May, June, July, August, September, November. Nine months. Oh my goodness, that makes me depressed just even thinking about it. But listen, over the past nine months, families who, because of COVID, because of the realities, and sometimes it wasn't even just because of COVID, it's just because of life. But in a time where the idea of generosity, people kind of get a pass, over the last nine months, we have been able to help numerous of families buy groceries and put gas in their vehicles so they can get to work because people who plan a generous life and live out that plan actually help others. And so thousands of dollars have been invested back into the welfare of the people who actually call Clarity home and our neighbors. And while we're still learning how to pivot due to COVID reality, people's plans for a generous life allows us to do things like live stream, uh, which takes equipment we didn't own and we still don't know how to use. So sorry, okay. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, it, it, it finds us doing services that we're not used to and uh, so, so that we can learn from God's Word together to connect and pray with one another. You know, do the things that like the early church has done. Like, I, I, I know COVID feels bad and like the government's not letting us meet, rah, rah, rah. But yeah, but no one's chasing us down. No one's busting in here with, with guns and so no one's throwing us into the pits of the arena. So like, the, the church of God is going to prevail, and we're going to be committed to learning from God's Word together, praying with one another, connecting with one another. We'll be flexible. We're not going to hold on to what that looks like, but we're going to be committed to those things. And, and when we're generous, we can do those kind of things together. And last but not least, it goes without saying, I am more than humbled and honored that the plan generosity of those who prioritize the kingdom of God through giving to the church they love has allowed me to be your pastor. Like, that's just the honest truth. And your generosity allows me to lead the charge as a fellow follower of Jesus in repurposing our rhythms so that those disconnected from God can experience the gospel of Jesus with clarity. And so who wins when we plan a generous life? You do. The people you love around you do. Your church does. The organizations that do good for those in need in our community way better than you can on your own. And so it's just better if you give them $5 instead of your old junk canned food. Right? It, it, who wins 
And ultimately, who wins? The kingdom of God wins when we, as followers of Jesus, reorient our lives, not just to be generous, but to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things we could ever hope and desire for because God changes now our desires.